we're all here, so let's start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this blessed day, the solemn day in which we celebrate one of the greatest gifts you have given us, our Blessed Mother, she who is the Mother of God, she who is our Mother by grace. We thank you for this gift that we may continue to learn about our Blessed Mother, the relationship she has with us, and especially the relationship, that perfect relationship she has with her beloved Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to learn about her through the wisdom of the saints tonight, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in her honor together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're going to focus primarily on the sheet. I do have my computer up just for a few uh, websites and a video that will be towards the end. But if you look at the first page, so Mary and the Communion of the Saints, it is awesome that we're doing this on uh, the Solemnity of Mary's Immaculate Conception. So we'll look at that. But just a quick overview, we'll look at Mary, why is she important, then also why the communion of saints, what is the communion of saints according to church language, and why the saints are so important. But we'll look at four different things. Tonight we'll review the four primary doctrines or dogmas. I'm just going to specify that here real quick on the computer. Regarding Mary and her special role in the life of Christians and of Catholics. Second, we'll look in depth at the communion of saints, their relationship among those on earth, in purgatory, and in heaven. This might be a brief review. Uh, we've talked about the uh, church, the three parts of the church triumphant, the church militant, and the church sufferance. We'll look at that a little bit more in depth and their role in the communion of saints. I will look at the role of the saints in the process of canonization, which may seem complicated, which it was at a time, but it's much more simple in a certain sense in terms of the steps. It still takes a while, but uh, we'll look at that. And then finally, we'll distinguish between the kinds of reverence and honor or devotion and worship due to God, which we covered or Blake covered the last few weeks of worship to God, the people of Israel. But what is the worship or honor that we give to Mary? What's the reverence that we give to the saints? So we'll kind of look at the relationship among uh, those three parts. So before I get into the four dogmatic truths, just... All right, so I'm not worried about all that verbiage. This is from Jimmy Aiken. Jimmy Aiken is on Catholic Answers Live, very uh, well-versed in uh, the Catholic tradition answers. But what I want to focus on, we're looking at the four primary dogmatic truths of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So for our purposes, I just want to look at these four definitions. If you're interested in this, I'm more than happy to send this out. But for our purposes, we're looking at what is a dogma officially. So dogma is simply anything that has been infallibly taught by the church as something that is divinely revealed. Now, maybe it wasn't, maybe you have a dogmatic truth that wasn't, uh, spoken by a pope ex cathedra from the chair of Peter, but it's still something that the church for all eternity, now and forever, is going to hold as true. So some examples, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the mystery of the Trinity, the assumption of Mary. All these 
we would classify as dogmas. So in terms of hierarchy of truth, dogmatic truths or dogmas are first and foremost. Right underneath dogmas, we have infallible doctrines. So they've been infallibly taught by the church, but they have not been defined as divinely revealed. Could there be some infallible doctrines that are raised to dogma at some point? Yes. But at least to this point, there are still infallible doctrines that have not reached the point of dogmatic truth. So, for example, priesthood is reserved to men. Anglican orders are... Yeah, so infallible is something... So, let's see. Uh, priesthood. So, within the Catholic Church, as Catholic Church, the, as a sacrament, the priesthood is reserved only for men. This is something that can never be Olkin women or... Can we have a mix or with respect to deacons and stuff like this? But even though Pope Francis or none of the popes before have made this a dogma, this is just before it's infallible. This is something that's not going to change at any point in time because it is the pure teaching, the rock of the church, that Jesus, when he established the church on Peter, this is uh, one thing that cannot be changed. It is infallible in that sense. So it's... Think of dogma as one infallible teaching as one A. It just hasn't been raised officially to that dogmatic truth. So yeah, thank you. Uh, so yeah, like I said, I can get into that. Theological opinion. You, all of us, can have theological opinions. The church may not officially believe in it. Or it is permitted by the church, but we're not going to call it infallible or non-infallible or worry about that. So, uh, so examples there. There are nine choirs of angels, fire purgatory is Christ himself. So I could believe that. You all could not believe that. But that's a theological opinion. But for our sake, we're just simply focused on dogma. Dogma is the most important. Just for all time, this is church teaching that is divinely revealed, which then the church, through the Pope, has expressed. All right. So now let's turn to the handout. What are the four primary doctrines of the Blessed Virgin Mary? So today, which we celebrate, the Immaculate Conception, states that simply Mary was conceived without original sin from the beginning, Adam and Eve, through the fall, and then all of the rest of humanity, we are plagued with original sin. But Mary, by a special grace, was preserved from original sin so that she could give birth to Jesus, also free from sin. He has to be free from sin if he is to truly be our Lord and Savior. So we celebrate that today. Uh, Mary, the mother of God, which is January 1st, simply declaring Mary as the mother of Jesus. Now, this may seem trivial, but again, who is Mary and who is Jesus? So it's not just any mother, but the two persons who are completely free from any and all sin. It shows that beautiful relationship of the Divine Mother and the Divine Son. So we recognize that, and also she being the mother of the second person of the Trinity. So it's not just any, nor any ordinary um, eternal relationship with her son, but it's the model of mother and son relationship. Uh, and then the third dogmatic truth of Mary is the Assumption, which states at the end of her earthly life, Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven. And we celebrate that on August 15th. And then finally, all this includes, must include necessarily, uh, Mary's perpetual virginity. So Mary remained a virgin throughout her entire life. 
So now we'll just kind of break down a little bit more in detail these four uh, doctrines, these dogmatic truths of Mary. Uh, so for the Immaculate Conception, the A through C are just short one-liners from the Catechism, uh, are brief and to the point. It simply tells us that to become the mother of the Savior, Mary, was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. And this is exactly what our Gospel readings talk about today. The Annunciation, Mary is greeted by the uh, Archangel Gabriel and says, Hail, full of grace. Now you think about that, and what in the world is an angel, an archangel, one who has been given a specific mission or a task by God to speak to this human? So regardless of being free from sin and all these things, like he's, Gabriel is a saint in heaven already. And way more powerful because he's pure spirit, he's united with God in heaven, and yet to Mary he's saying, Hail, full of grace. Like this is an amazing, miraculous reality. So she truly has been given the gifts of someone like unlike any other person, to be the mother of God in this way. So to be full of grace, so you kind of think about it too. It really shows, I think, this image of what we're talking about today, Mary and the communion of saints. If you just think about the Hail Mary for a second. Hail Mary, full of grace. So right there you have Gabriel, uh, that uh, greeting to her, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, which then leads us to the visitation. Elizabeth recognizing through John the Baptist, John, uh, Jesus' cousin, leaping in her womb to the point that Elizabeth recognizes, how can this be that the mother of my Lord is in front of me? So you have Elizabeth, who is a great saint, who is the mother of John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the church. And then you do the second half, or you pray the second half of the or Hail Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. So that central point of the Hail Mary, of course, the name of Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. So right there you see the church triumphant. You see the church suffering, the souls in purgatory through that second half of the Hail Mary. And then you see us, the church militant, through our praying of the Hail Mary. It is us who desire for Mary to pray uh, for us, ask her intercession to lead us to heaven in that way. So just simply praying the Hail Mary in that way, we can see the relationship of Mary and the communion of saints in that. And then finally, uh, letter C, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. So even at the, because of her immaculate conception, from the moment that Mary was born as a small child, she immediately devoted herself to prayer, a life of uh, chastity, of penance, of prayer, going to the temple with her family, with Anne and uh, Joachim. And just, yeah, even Anne and Joachim, everyone could see there's something different about this person. What is it? And then finally, even though it was a great mystery through the Annunciation, through the joyful mysteries, it's slowly God's plan of salvation is clearly coming into play, which then is going to affect all the saints who have devotion to Mary, and it affects all of us who one day, God willing, are going to be saints in heaven as well. Uh, and then the actual dogmatic statement, which comes from Pope Pius IX, states, The Most Blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege, of Almighty God and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, 
So in a certain sense, yes, we're not honoring Mary as God, but she herself had to assent in faith to the plan of God. Very, very important. So in her assent, however that came to be, we don't know, but she did. Um, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved, immune from all stain of original sin. So in the Old Testament, in Genesis, you have Eve, who is the mother of all creation, which we hear in the first reading today at Mass as well. So Mary is the new Eve. By the order of grace, uh, we receive from her hands uh, the salvation from her son, Jesus, in that way. And it's all because of her immaculate conception, which then really connects with all the other dogmatic truths that we're looking at here as well. Uh, okay. The splendor of an earthly unique holiness by which Mary is enriched from the first instance of her conception comes wholly from Christ, like we said. Mary is redeemed in a more exalted fashion by reason of the merits of her son. Now, God could have saved the world in literally an infinite number of ways, but he desired to save us by means of a mother, by means of human participation. And just the reality that grace, God's free, perfect, infinite grace, builds on our human nature. And we receive that from the hands of our Blessed Mother. So it's really beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of different statues of our Blessed Mother, but oftentimes you'll see Mary with her hands open like this. So one title that we can think of is Mary is the Mediatrix of All Grace, which is just a fancy term that Jesus desires to give us all grace through the hands of our Blessed Mother. So that, like our relationship with our own mother, that maternal care that we receive from a mother, so in the order of grace, in the spiritual order, Jesus desires us to turn to Mary, to run to Mary, to run to Joseph, to run the Most Holy Family, so that we can receive those spiritual graces as well. So it's a really incredible, very beautiful uh, dogmatic truth. And it leads then to our second uh, dogma as Mary, uh, the mother of God. So, as I said, it's not just any motherhood, but it's a divine motherhood. This is why it's so important. This is why we celebrate it as one of the great solemnities of the church. Mary is called the mother of Jesus in all the Gospels, or the mother of my Lord, as I discussed earlier, Elizabeth calling her that in the visitation. Uh, this was also, this title, Mary, Mother of God, was also uh, confirmed once again at the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. Uh, there was a heresy, the Nestorian heresy, that simply regarded Christ as a human person joined to the divine person of God's Son. So you kind of had this mixture entity of Jesus. He's still this really good, holy person, but he's not quite fully man and fully divine. So how do we wrestle with that? Or is this true? Is this... Now, the other thing, too, with heresies, you don't have Nestorius or any of the other heresies in the church. Just someone waking up and yawning out of their bed and saying, I'm going to create a heresy today. So he had good intentions, but and by the grace of God, because of this heresy, we have now firmly established for us uh, Mary as the mother of God. It enabled the church fathers and the church councils to actually define, well, who do we truly believe that Mary is? So we might look at heresies, oh, well, you heretic, you pagan, whatever. It's like, no, actually, it's a really good thing because it allowed the church in its infant years to really think, what is our faith? We need to define our faith, what it is and what it's not. So then from the council, uh, from the Lateran council later, it has, my right page. 
Oh, no, here we go. Uh, St. Cyril of Alexandria is the one that responds to this heresy. And he tells us, For we do not say that the nature of the word was changed and made flesh, nor yet that it was changed into the whole man composed of soul and body. But rather, if anything, I would focus on this part. But rather, we say that the word, capital W word, in an ineffable and inconceivable manner, so this mystery of grace, having hypostatically united to himself flesh, animated by a rational soul, became man and was called the Son of Man. So in this statement, basically what Cyril of Alexandria is saying is that Jesus, by this mystery, Mary being the mother of God, gave birth to Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. So that hypostatic union, two persons in one nature. And from this, we get then the title, the Theotokos. There's many images of the Theotokos, uh, beautiful images that show like Greek icons of our Blessed Mother with the child Jesus. There's not necessarily one, or there's debates, but anytime you see an icon with Mary and our Blessed, or the child Jesus, it's usually an image of the Theotokos, which is unveiling this uh, great truth from the Council of Nicaea. And then the title of the Theotokos, we are also related, uh, for it was no ordinary man who was first born of the Holy Virgin and upon whom the word afterwards descended. But being united from the womb itself, he is said to have undergone fleshly birth, claiming as his own the birth of his own flesh. Thus the Holy Fathers did not hesitate to speak of the Holy Virgin as the mother of God. So Mary is not just the mother of God, but we also get this imagery of Mary as queen mother. So in 1 Kings chapter 2, so basically I'll read the verse and then I'll explain. There is one small favor I would ask of you, she said, uh, this is Bathsheba, uh, do not refuse me, ask it, my mother, the king said to her, at this point it's King Solomon, her son, for I will not refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Sunamite be given to your brother Adonai for his wife. Well, it's in, okay, maybe it's not quite there, but right here it's King David, who his wife is Bathsheba, is Bathsheba who bows down to King David. Well, once King David passes away, we know that Jesus comes from the line of David. It is then Solomon who takes uh, his father's place, and instead of his wife being uh, who everyone Israel goes to, it is now Bathsheba who bows down to King Solomon. So you have this image of this queen mother, which then looking at Mary, the mother of God, this divine relationship, this divine motherhood, it is Mary who is, like that image I have on the very first page, it's Mary being crowned as queen of heaven and earth. It's Mary, other than being right next to God the Father, and the Trinity, or the Holy Spirit, Mary has the highest place in heaven. So she, being that queen mother, holds that most prominent and beautiful place right next to her son. But you can find that in First uh, Kings, uh, chapter two. Next, we'll look at Mary's perpetual virginity. Uh, from the first formulations of her faith, the Church has confessed that Jesus was conceived solely by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Uh, the Church affirms. Also, yes, the corporeal aspect of Mary's conception. So many believe that Mary did not experience the pangs of childbirth. But then when you have, uh, in Revelation, you hear this uh, spiritual 
mystery, the mother, or the woman clothed with the sun, the pangs that she has there. Ultimately, when she's giving birth to the church, the belief is that she experiences the child pangs of giving birth to the church in that mysterious uh, book of Revelation. But because she conceived by the Holy Spirit, yes, she still gave a physical birth, but because she is conceived um, by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is her spouse, it is in this mystery that she was able to give birth to the child, Jesus. So Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit without human seed, because if there's human seed, that's a problem. Why? Because human seed would mean it would come from the line of Adam, ultimately, which then would lead to original sin, so we can't have that. So the Lateran Council defines this for us. And then the church fathers see in Mary's virginal conception the sign that it was truly was the Son of God. And her virginal conception also fulfills then the prophecy of Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So while we may recognize as Mary being the earthly spouse of Joseph, Joseph being the patron or the foster father of Jesus, but in the order of grace, Mary, for our salvation, is the spouse of the Holy Spirit. And all four gospel accounts understand the virginal conception of Jesus as a divine work that surpasses all human understanding and possibility. That's the thing with mysteries, even in heaven, even the saints right now, they'll never be able to understand completely any of these mysteries, but we can still always grow in our wisdom and our understanding and our knowledge of these. And just it ultimately shows, I think, just the overwhelming supernatural love that God has for us. So we can always grow in that virtue. Just the marvel, the fear of the Lord, not... Don't smite me, Lord, but fear the Lord. Just, wow, Lord, you are so good. You are so awesome. How is it possible that you love us so much to do these things? Uh, then Ignatius of Antioch concludes their faith in the virginal conception of Jesus met with lively opposition, mockery, or incomprehension of nonbelievers, Jews, and pagans alike. This probably happens with a lot of dogmatic truths or all throughout the church. I'm sure this was not uncommon. So it could hardly have been motivated by pagan mythology or by some adaptation to the ideas of the age. The meaning of this event is accessible only to faith, which understands in it the connection of these mysteries with one another and the totality of Christ's mysteries from his incarnation to his Passover. So indirectly, I think this is a shout out then to the rosary because when we pray the rosary, we're meditating on the mysteries of Jesus. So this is one great way of the dogmatic truths of Mary by praying the rosary, especially the joyful mysteries of the rosary, we're able to really understand better who Mary is as our uh, blessed mother, as our spiritual mother in that sense. And then finally, Mary, ever virgin. Here we're just simply stating the deepening of faith in Mary's virginal motherhood it led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual Virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God, as I said before. Lumen Gentium 57. Uh, this was in a, a papal document from the Vatican, Second Vatican Council. Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but rather sanctified it. And one, probably the biggest objection to Mary's perpetual virginity is in the gospel accounts, you'll see a few times the term brothers and sisters, and like, oh, well, Mary clearly wasn't a virgin because... Jesus had brothers and sisters, or when Joseph married Mary, he probably was married previously and brought brothers and sisters, so how do we deal with all this? Well, the word for brothers and sisters, basically, it translates into, it can be cousins, 
And there's also other Marys that are listed in the Gospels. So it's like, well, you're not even talking about Mary, the Divine Mother of God. You're, this is another Mary. Or even at the foot of the cross, the Marys that were there when they buried Jesus and all these things. So while it has the term brothers and sisters, this isn't for us to think, oh, well, Mary wasn't a virgin and Jesus indeed had brothers. So everything just crumbles to the ground. No. Brothers and sisters is... Disciples of our Lord and our Blessed Mother, disciples or brothers and sisters is like cousins, extended family, but not blood relation brother and sister in that way. All right. And then the assumption. Uh, I want to look, if you think about the divine praises, so the divine praises is when we do benediction of the Blessed Sacrament and adoration. And... Once the priest goes up and he raises the monstrance and everyone blesses themselves with the sign of the cross, so we come back and pray the divine praises. And I just want to bring to mind uh, the lines that we say about Mary, because it's all connected. All these dogmatic truths are connected, and we see that here in these lines. In the divine praises, we say, Blessed be the great mother of God, Mary most holy. Blessed be her holy and immaculate conception. Blessed be her glorious assumption. Blessed be the name of Mary, Virgin, and Mother. So all these things that we've talked about are in the divine praises. So they all come together. They all make sense. So this is a beautiful uh, aspect of our faith as well. And quickly again, just the effects of original sin. One of them, obviously, bodily corruption. But first and foremost, because of original sin, we are all going to die. Death is the number one consequence of original sin. But Mary, as we know, as we've been talking about, does not have original sin, thanks be to God. So her body never experienced decay or corruption. And regard, or whether Mary experienced death or just right as she was closing her eyes, did God step in real quick and assume her this way, or did she experience death for a minute, five minutes, an hour? That's a theological debate. So there is like a theological opinion on that bottom one. We could all have different opinions on that. It ultimately doesn't matter. What matters is we know that dogmatic statement on the next page, Pope Pius XII and the church tells us, Mary, the immaculate, perpetually virgin mother of God. So just in that one statement right there, all four or all the dogma, dogmatic truths that we've talked about Mary, he incorporates in that one statement. So Mary, the immaculate, perpetually virgin mother of God, after the completion of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven, which is incredible. Again, Mary, also from Pope Pius XII, Mary, by an entirely unique privilege, which again is related to the privilege she had with the Immaculate Conception, completely overcame sin by it, the Immaculate Conception, and as a result, she was not subject to the law of remaining in the corruption of the grave. And she did not have to wait until the end of time for the redemption of her body. And we even see this, there are some souls, when Jesus descends, excuse me, when he descends into the, uh, the dead, you have souls that are raised up at that time. That's an extreme grace of Jesus' passion and death and resurrection. But for us, we're going to have to wait until the final victory is achieved, which is portrayed right here. St. Michael's my confirmation saint, so I always have him close at hand. But until this moment is achieved... We are not going to have the grace that Mary has of once she dies, immediately she just goes to heaven because she's free from original sin. None of us are free from original sin. Uh, I'm not going to read D, but that's 
Basically, it shows you what an ex cathedra statement is, and in the bolded section, or yeah, the bolded section is essentially what I read for letter C, number one, but the ex cathedra statement is a pope standing at the chair of St. Peter, what a formal ex cathedra statement looks like when he's making a, a dogmatic truth. So, all right, so that's the four... Dogmatic truths. Any questions on that? All right. So now we'll take a look at the communion of saints. So just simply here, I just want to look at what do the saints do for us? So you might have some answers or things you think of in your head, but I just want to lay out basically four primary things that the saints do for us. And it's not limited to these four things, but primarily the saints desire a friendship with us. Just like our Blessed Mother desires, A, a friendship, but more so a relationship as mother and son. So all of her children, the saints in heaven, she's going to do everything in her power to, hey, these are my children. I want you to help them. I want you to be friends with them, get to know them. So friendship. The saints, they are perfect followers of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they offer us their friendship. So in heaven, they offer us not just simply love, but supernatural love because they're so united with God in the beatific vision. So they can even show us signs of their friendship. So one of the uh, classic examples, anyone who has devotion to St. Therese of Lisieux, friends, I've had countless occasions. You always see Therese with roses. So when they're praying for something, they're always, God, you don't have to show me a sign, or Therese, you don't have to show me a sign, but if you show me some roses or if I go into a church or these types of things and I see some flowers, that'll give me confidence that I'm, following your will and all these things. Yeah, long story short, you have those types of stories and then they see a bunch of flowers right in front of Therese of Lisieux's uh, statue in the church. So stuff like that. They can, by their intercession, by their love for us, they can show us signs that, yep, this is, you're at peace. I want to provide you peace or God wants to provide you peace. You're on the right path. Continue moving forward. Or sometimes we choose them, sometimes they choose us. But ultimately, the friendship is rooted in relationships. So for me, Got to be honest, I remember parts of my confirmation preparation, but it was probably a week and a half, two weeks before my actual confirmation. My dad was in the dining room. He's like, so do you know who your confirmation saint? Have you picked your confirmation saint yet? I was like, um, and I think I had thought about it, but I don't know. Maybe I was just like caught off guard. I didn't really have an answer, but for whatever reason, immediately St. Michael's name came to mind. So I said, yeah. St. Michael. Like, you sure? I'm like, yep, St. Michael it is. All right, so we're going to put down St. Michael. Now, I didn't know a ton about St. Michael, and I knew, like, well, of course, I want St. Michael because who doesn't love as a man, who doesn't love an image of a warrior, God's chosen angel to destroy the head of Satan and to bring about the second coming. So in my own time following my confirmation and just learning about uh, St. Michael has just been an incredible relationship that's developed. And in the Eucharistic Prayer 1, when the priest bows down following the mystery of faith and the uh, Alleluia, or the gospel, no, what's it called? The acclamation. When the priest bows down in, in a slightly lower voice, when he's praying for this sacrifice at the altar to be raised up by the hands of your holy angel, it's St. Michael. And I didn't know that until maybe halfway through my first year as a priest or someone, but I got into a conversation with someone like, 
No, I have this book. Let me go double check, but I'm pretty sure it's Michael, the one that always, at the sacrifice of the Mass, it's he who brings up the sacrifice, which makes sense because if he's doing that, it also is connection to him being the one that destroys the devil once and for all. So just stuff like that. You just really grow in your relationship with confirmation saints or just saints in general. You can just have a short list of who are your favorite saints and kind of get to know the lives of the saints. It's a great way to learn more about the faith as well. Uh, the saints do for, what do the saints do for us is their example. Simply, they show us a blueprint to holiness, their unique sanctity. We are not called to be 100 Therese of Lisieux or 100 St. Michaels, but we're all called to be St. Brian, St. Chad, St. Blake. Like All of us are called to be our own unique saints, but they give us a blueprint, blueprint to what sanctity, a holiness of life looks like. Uh, they intercede on our behalf. They pray to God on our behalf. So no, all the saints, the communion of saints are not God, but we can pray because... We can pray to them. We can ask for their intercession, especially if their life and their vocation is similar to ours. Then they understand our joys. They understand our sorrows. They understand our crosses better than maybe some other saints do. Not that we discredit other saints, but this is a way for us to have their intercession because they know us personally. They can help us and pray to God more fervently on our behalf. And patron saints. They're all saints have... Patron saint of X, Y, and Z, so you can look for that. For me, if I had a dollar for every time I prayed to St. Anthony after I lose something, I would be able to retire any day now. So, uh, Teaching. So the saints instruct us through their lives, their words, their example, preaching, and their inspiration. They inspire us to follow Christ more fully through their heroic struggles, through their own crosses, their physical and spiritual trials, even their joys. Uh, the sufferings of the saints inspire us to bear the particular crosses God has granted to each and every one of us. And, yeah, just an understanding that God does not give us crosses that we can't handle. He only gives us those particular crosses that he knows we can't handle. That is, if we're connected, praying with God, asking for God's protection, asking the intercession of the saints who can inspire us in this way. All right, so the communion of saints, then, in a nutshell... What is the church? How does the church define what the communion of saints is? Simply, all members of the communion of saints share and reciprocate spiritual gifts, which they all have because they're on high. They are with God in the fullness of heaven. So the communion of saints is the bond of charity. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. That unites all Christians and all their spiritual gifts together in perfect communion. And because Mary is our Blessed Mother, as we heard in the second reading today, every spiritual gift has been given to us from on high from God through his Son, Jesus Christ, who we receive from the Blessed Virgin Mother. So we're on the path right now to that sanctity of life. So if we think we can't make it through this life, if we're struggling, we don't have the answers, another reason to pray to the saints, to pray to Mary, to ask for their protection, because by that grace, we already have the resources available to us, that grace that can give us strength from on high. So all in the church form one family in Christ, who is the cornerstone, as well as we share the full grace of Christ, but in different ways. So all of us have our own particular talents, our charisms, our gifts, and we continue to build up the church through those charisms and our talents in that way. Three primary groups, we talked about this, Church Triumphant, the Saints in Heaven, 
the church suffering, all the souls in purgatory, and the church militant. Uh, so those on earth who are still marching on their journey to heaven is the church militant. So very Advent-like. All of us are journeying towards the Christ child right now. We are striving. There are hills and valleys. There are uh, difficult times. Mary bearing Jesus while traveling with Joseph trying to find a place to give birth to the Christ child. There are many challenges and struggles. But yet we know the reward is worth it. The reward is ultimately our relationship, our union with God and the blessed uh, Holy Family. So there, too, we see that the wood of the crib is the wood of the cross, that sacrificial way of life. And yes, albeit through sacrifice, we receive that great reward of the resurrection that all the saints and Mary uh, share in. We're called the church militant because the Christian life is a physical and spiritual battle. It's a struggle to maintain and share our faith, battle against all sin and vice, the challenge yet necessary to have discipline, obedience, and our life to achieve victory in Christ. We're also called the Pilgrim Church, so this language is used in the Eucharistic prayers. We ourselves, we are marching forward to the gates of heaven. And the church triumphant aid the church suffering and the church militant by their prayers. So we too then, the church militant, can pray to the saints in heaven. As for their intercession, we can pray for the souls of purgatory, which is very important, and we can pray also for each other. Next page just simply is a chart, kind of breaks it down a little bit more in detail. What the three parts of the church are doing, who can they pray for, who are they praying for, who are they working for, or who are they being helped by. And this quote is from the Catechism on the Communion of Saints. It is not merely by the title of example that we cherish the memory of those in heaven. We seek rather that by this devotion to the exercise of fraternal charity, the union of the whole church and the spirit may be strengthened. So again, all things geared towards charity. Exactly as Christian communion among our fellow pilgrims brings us closer to Christ, so our communion with the saints joins us to Christ, from whom as from its fountain and head issues all grace and the life of the people of God itself. Another image or expression you may hear is the mystical body of Christ. This is a term simply for all three parts of the church. So it's the spiritual and the physical church as a whole. So the mystical body of Christ in that sense. All right. Next page, I just simply lay out in detail the types of saints. So how I list it is priests uh, who pray the uh, divine office every day. In the back, you have commons. And depending on who the saint is, there's a hierarchy of the commons. So the one I don't list is the only one that's above the Blessed Virgin Mary is when you dedicate a church, which we'll be doing that sooner rather than later, hopefully. So that'll be cool to do that. But just looking at the types of saints here, we have first, again, Mary is the supreme saint, so the common of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We have the apostles who are right underneath. They're the closest followers of Mary and Jesus. So because Judas is out, but it is 12 because uh, Barnabas is his replacement. Then we have the common of martyrs. So those in any age who die for their faith in Christ and his church. Now, martyrs, again, you're not waking up and say, I'm going to go. Like their intention is I'm going to get killed for the sake of the church. It's one thing to, by your faith, profess the fullness of the faith. And if it means being killed for it, that's a martyr, as in 
I'm just going to recklessly go into this and, yeah, please, please kill me so I can go to heaven. Mm, your intention's a little bit different. So, but those who are dying for the faith that don't uh, deny the faith, they're not apost they don't commit a sin of apostasy, they're not denying the faith in any way, but I believe in the faith, do your worst in that sense, but I'm not going to uh, discredit the faith in any way, shape, or form. That's what a martyr is doing. He sheds his blood as Jesus uh, lovingly sheds his blood for us. Uh, also within the comment of martyrs, you have several martyrs or companions. So there are plenty of times where you have one main saint who we know is a martyr, and there are plenty of other people that were his followers or disciples. We don't have all their names, so you just simply list them as companions. Uh, and I list St. Maximilian Kolbe uh, because he is well known for, he was kind of an unruly child. His mom had troubles with him, but he was sleeping one night. He had a vision or he had a dream, and the Blessed Mother appeared to him, and she offered him, was it two hearts or two crowns, two crowns, a red crown and a white crown. And she asked for Maximilian Kolbe to choose one of them, and he, out of his heroic virtue, said, I desire to choose both. So the red martyrdom meeting, it was an indication, a sign he was going to be a martyr for the faith, but then a white martyrdom of dying to self uh, in a virtuous way. So he was a priest. He ultimately gave his life for, a, he was in a Nazi camp. A father who was pulled to be executed, he stood in his way, and he was a father of three or four children and said, oh, let me take his place, I want to die for him. So then he eventually was taken to the place where he was executed, and they had to give him one or two different types of injections. He wasn't falling. Then they gave him carbolic acid, which finally uh, ended up killing him. But yeah, so he chose both a red martyrdom and a white martyrdom. So all of us are probably not going to be red martyrdoms. We're not going to shed our blood. But that white martyrdom is what the saints, what Mary and what the communion of saints do well, is that white martyrdom, those that aren't martyrs per se. But all of us are called to live a white martyrdom of how can I die to self even in small ways, so like Therese of Lisieux, to love greatly in small aspects, that white martyrdom of faith. Uh, following the common of martyrs, we have the common of pastors, so men who heroically fulfilled the pastoral ministry. So this includes pope, bishops, priests, and deacons. Uh, the common of doctors of the church, men and women who provide saintly insights and guidance for the universal church through their writings, their teachings, and preachings. So in the Divine office and the office of readings, usually uh, the first reading is from sacred scripture, from the Old Testament, and then the second reading is usually going to be from a doctor of the church or some uh, writing or teaching uh, from the saints themselves. Then we have the common of virgins, women who consecrate their life and virginity to Jesus. They're elevated a little bit more <clears throat> when it's a... Uh, virgin and a martyr. So we give special praise to those such saints. And then common of holy men and women, individuals who lived lives of outstanding and heroic holiness, but often in ordinary circumstances. Now again, Blake mentioned this last time, you may think ordinary, like is an ordinary time. No, there's nothing ordinary about it, but it's like an ordinal. It's directing us to the life of Christ. So in ordinary circumstances, and our ordinary vocations, which are still a God-given vocation, like all of us can live great lives 
of holiness. And I think of all of these, most of us are, God willing, when we become saints, it's going to be within holy men and women. So uh, husbands and wives raising their family, God-fearing families, uh, going to Mass, receiving the sacraments, praying together, like doing the little things, like we'll have a huge amount of saints in little time because we'll be protected by Mary and Joseph the Holy Family in that way. So yeah, ordinary circumstances doesn't mean, oh, well, you're less than all these other saints. But no, like I said, we're all called to be saints in our own unique way. We have the blueprint. Now let's just live our vocation in the best way possible. And then I include the church fathers. So the church fathers uh, are important because they define the creeds of our faith. So you have characteristics of the church fathers, the antiquity, because they're so close to Jesus, lives of holiness, uh, just the dogmatic truths that they're able to proclaim. And it's because that continuity, that line of the church is not broken in any way, shape, or form that allows you and I, all of us, to right now be doing classes in the way to, well, what did the church fathers say? So our creed, the creed that we celebrate on Sunday or the, uh, the Nicene Creed, and the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed, I forgot to mention that. That was at the beginning, I was going to say. At the very end of the Apostles' Creed, we are praying for our, our belief in the communion of the saints as well. So without the creedal statements given to us by the church fathers, by their devotion to the faith, by their apostolic tradition, continuing that apostolic tradition, we wouldn't have uh, the very tenets, the very aspects of our faith. So the church fathers are very, very important. And I would say when people convert asking them their story and stuff, usually the church fathers or reading something from the church fathers is uh, included. All right. Uh, <clears throat> I have listed here the process of canonization. If you want to look through this while I play this video, you can. But I'm going to basically show you a video of what the current canonization process looks like. Do you ever want to know how the Catholic Church declares someone a saint? You probably know that periodically the Catholic Church recognizes new holy men and women as its official saints. But what exactly are the steps to canonization, that is, being named a saint by the Catholic Church? The process has actually changed throughout history. In the first centuries, it was by acclamation of the community that sainthood was pronounced, sort of a spiritual popularity contest. But because the stories of some of the early saints' lives were later found to be exaggerated or even purely legend, this method eventually gave way to a more structured process. So, in the Middle Ages, a new path to sainthood was prescribed, a set of rules we pretty much still use today. Here's what happens. First of all, and probably most obvious, a person has to have died in order to be considered an official saint in the church because we believe the saints are in heaven with God. So at some point after their death, some fan of the potential saint, like someone who knew them or a member of their religious community, asks their local bishop to begin the cause for canonization. Once the bishop agrees, the potential saint receives the title Servant of God. And a formal review is undertaken at the local level, guided by historians and theologians. Then the bishop may decide to send the cause to Rome. The Congregation for the Causes of Saints, an entire department at the Vatican devoted to this sainthood process, then determines if the person in question demonstrated heroic sanctity in their lifetime worthy of imitation. That is, did they live a life marked by virtuous actions? 
doing good works out of love of God and neighbor? If so, with the Pope's decree, they are declared venerable. Next, the search begins for proof that a miracle occurred through the person's intercession since they have died. Note that this is not a miracle that happened while they were alive, like cases where saints have reportedly levitated or experienced the wounds of Christ. In the eyes of the church, a miracle attributed to someone after their death is evidence that the person is indeed in heaven with God, interceding for us here on earth. Catholic belief is that it is actually God that performs the miracle. The potential saint is essentially being credited with an assist, like in hockey or basketball. The process of confirming that a miracle truly happened is exhaustive. Miracles for sainthood are not limited to medical cures, but in practice they almost always are. And a miraculous cure must meet three stringent criteria. It must be instantaneous, lasting, and unexplainable. Instantaneous, meaning that a person goes from very sick or terminally ill to healthy in a very short period of time, usually days. Lasting, meaning it was not a fluke or a brief remission, the cure needs to last for at least a year or more. And unexplainable, meaning that the person's return to health may not be even possibly attributed to any other course of treatment. To verify these criteria, doctors and scientific experts scrutinize medical records and weigh in on the credibility of these claims. Even non-religious skeptics are invited to try to disprove the miracle. On top of all that, there must be evidence that people prayed for the intercession of the would-be saint before the miraculous cure happened, and that they did not enlist the help of any other saint. It's okay to pray to God or Jesus directly, of course, but you can't hedge your bets by also including ringers like St. Jude or even the Virgin Mary. So once there is proof that a miracle resulted from the aspiring saint's intercession, the person may now be officially called blessed. The ceremony during which this happens is called beatification and is most often held in the local diocese that has promoted this person's sainthood cause. At this point, a feast day is chosen to be celebrated in certain places having to do with this blessed person and churches and schools may be named after them. And now the search begins for a second miracle that can be shown to have happened after the beatification using the same stringent process just described. Once miracle number two is verified and approved by Rome, the person may then be officially canonized, which means that the Pope declares them a saint. This ceremony almost always happens at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and is presided over by the Pope himself. Once canonized, a saint is recognized by the Universal Church and their feast day may be celebrated all around the world. Now that's the official process. Of course, there are always exceptions. For instance, a martyr, someone who has died voluntarily as a witness to the faith, requires only one miracle for canonization, not two. The Pope can also decide to dispense with the second miracle even for a non-martyr, as Pope Francis did with Pope John XXIII. And then there's equivalent canonization, in which someone who is unofficially considered a saint in certain cultures or countries can be officially declared one through papal decree rather than through the full canonization process. It's important to note that the Catholic Church does not believe that through any of these processes a holy person becomes a saint. We are merely recognizing their sainthood. It's our earthly way of officially affirming that they are indeed in heaven with God, hearing and assisting with our prayers. And now you know how the Catholic Church officially goes about declaring someone a saint. It does a good job of explaining it. The process still takes a long time, which 
as it needs to be, the process investigation needs to be exhaustive. I was really fortunate. I was actually able to go to a beatification mass when I was in the seminary for Blessed Stanley Rother. So if you want to know more about him, I'd be more than happy to share his story with you. We don't have time now. But uh, it was in Oklahoma City, and because I was part of the seminary scola, Blessed Stanley Rother went to Mount St. Mary's Seminary, so they invited us to sing some uh, music as preludes before the beatification mass started. It wasn't in the primary arena in Oklahoma City where the Oklahoma City Thunder play, but it was at the secondary one. But we woke up at probably 6.45, 6.30, and there was already five line, or five rows deep of people trying to get in. There's probably over 5,000 people there, and they just simply said, we can't take any more people. But to this day, it's been the best snapshot of the Universal Church I've ever seen because you had people all across the country, you had people from the Philippines, from uh, Guatemala, so he's from Santiago Atilon, from Mexico, from yeah, just countries all across the world uh, for this beatification mass, and just Seeing the holy card, which I don't have it with me, I can show you his holy card uh, next time. But yeah, just being a part of that and just really showing the power of the saints. So Blessed Stanley Rother is the first priest martyr of the United States. So, and he went to the same seminary that Father Clark Dew and I all went to. So it's pretty, pretty powerful. It's yeah, sainthood is not just meant for the elite; it's meant for all of us. Like this. Uh, he grew up on a farm, wasn't very good at school or languages, and yet he became the first priest martyr of the church. Like, that's the power of the communion of the saints. So because he's a, he was a martyr, he only needs one more miracle. So now I pray his <coughs> prayer, his cause for canonization, hopefully. So anytime you have a prayer or miracle type thing, if you say a prayer to Blessed Stanley Rother, that'd be good. Because I think I mentioned it here too. Like, we need to pray for the saint we're trying to get, or if it's a blessed or someone or even a venerable, we need to pray for particularly their intercession because if we pray to Mary or any of these other saints, then that's part of the investigation. Oh, well, was this Mary who interceded on that person's behalf or was it Blessed Stanley Rother or these other saints? So pretty cool there. All right, uh, last couple things real quick. Uh, the catechism, that's uh, Roman numeral four, letter A, just gives a overview of what canonizing means. So by canonizing some of the faithful, what we're doing, uh, solemnly proclaiming that they practice heroic virtue, they lived in fidelity to God's grace. So I love the point they made at the end. It's not because they were made saints, but we're recognizing now by this process that currently they are saints in heaven. Now uh, the church recognizes the power of the spirit of holiness within her and sustains the hope of believers by proposing the saints to them as models and intercessors. So as Mary is the spouse of the Holy Spirit, we by our baptism, by the sacraments, we too receive that fullness of the Spirit. So we are united to Mary and the saints in that way. The saints have always been the source and origin of renewal in the most difficult moments in the church's history. The church has been around for 2,000 plus years. It will continue to be around for all time. So, Indeed, holiness is the hidden source and infallible measure of our apostolic activity and missionary zeal. All of us as disciples, when we go to Mass, we are sent forward to proclaim the good news, just like Mary, just like the apostles, to have that missionary zeal. Uh, but while in the Most Blessed Virgin, the Church has already reached that perfection whereby she exists without spot or wrinkle due to the Immaculate Conception, 
the faithful still strive to conquer sin and increase in holiness. And so they turn their eyes to Mary, because in her the church is already the all-holy. Beautiful kind of summary of Mary and the communion of saints in our uh, goal to be saints with Mary and all the saints in heaven with God. And then last but not least, kind of showing the question we, the church, get all the time. Well, why do you, why do you uh, worship Mary? Why do you praise Mary? So here we're going to look at the three primary types of uh, reverence or honor that we give. And that's particular reverence to God, particular reverence to Mary, and particular reverence to the saints. So first we have latria, which this is the Latin word for simply worship and adoration. So adoration of our blessed Lord in the Eucharist at Mass, when we reverence and worship our Lord. What Blake has been talking about the last two weeks, that is essentially an act or acts of latria. Latria is solely expressed to the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if it's expressed to anyone or anything else, this would be offense uh, against the first commandment. So we would be worshiping small case G, God, as opposed to God himself. Then we have dulia. This is honor and devotion or respect given to the communion of saints or a particular saint, group of saints, your personal favorite saints. Uh, this is essentially different than latria. We are praising the saints, yes, for their heroic lives of virtue, but we are not giving adoration to St. Faustina, St. Therese, St. Peter. They are not God. Holy men and women of God, yes, but not God. And then hyperdulia, which is just an increased level of dulia. This is a unique praise and devotion and honor to the greatest saint of all, our Blessed Mother, because of her great role in salvation history given to her by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, higher than dulia, but still essentially different from latria, which can only be given to God in adoration and worship. All right, that's all I got. Are there any questions? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.